In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4, the very last chapter of the epistle. Paul delivers a powerful charge to Timothy, urging him to preach the word and remain faithful to his ministry, no matter the opposition or persecution he may face. Paul, fully aware of his own impending death, encourages Timothy to stay focused, keep a clear mind, and be prepared to endure any suffering that may come his way. Good morning and blessed Lenten Tide. Today is Friday, February 24th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning, we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Check out lhfmissions.org to learn how they help congregations and missionaries spread the good news through Lutheran materials in foreign languages. They can also help out with a mission speaker if that's what you're looking for. Again, visit them online at lhfmissions.org. Well, helping us wrap up the Apostle Paul's second letter to Pastor Timothy, I'm happy to welcome back to the program the Reverend Stephen Tice, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Good morning, Pastor Tice. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Good morning. Thank you very much. It's good to be with well, you Well, it's today. great to have you on as normal. Um, I'm up here in Chile, Minnesota. I hear you are actually in the studios there at KFUO. That's It's always neat to be able to do that. Yes, it's good to be back. I was able to be here last month as well. This works out for me uh, with my wife and I coming up to see children and grandchildren in the, the metro St. Louis area. If we can arrange that to be on the fourth Friday of the month, I can come inside. Oh, that's great. Well, how has your, uh, you know, Lent has been going on for all of two days now, maybe right. three, depending on how you count it. How's your Lenten diet been so far? Do you guys have Ash Wednesday services? We did have Ash Wednesday services. We were able to gather um, the Lord's house to hear his word and focus on the, the promise that God gives us in Jesus. And, uh, recognizing that uh, Jesus, uh, Matthew 6 in particular, the reading for Ash Wednesday from the Gospel of Matthew, sandwiched around the Lord's Prayer without repeating it, but three times in that reading, Jesus uses the phrase, your Father who sees in secret. And then in the middle of the your Father, he includes the our Father. And I thought that was kind of a, a good way for us to remind the people gathered for worship and ourselves as well, that we are part of a body of believers that's bigger than just one group or one place. And so Ash Wednesday, we got to start focusing again on the whole people of God and the whole world rescued through Christ. But in particular, we focused on that phrase, your father who sees. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, well, I have to admit on mine, for the first time in my almost decade and a half of ministry, I had to cancel Ash Wednesday services because of our blizzard. I understand. Which was kind of a, yeah, which is kind of a grinch. It came and it, it swooped in and we didn't want people to feel burdened to come out. I mean, I live next door. I could have made it either way. But, yep. you know, we canceled. And, um, well, frankly, uh, Lent came even without Ash Wednesday services. It's still here. Yes, it is. Kind of like at the end of the... Uh, uh, the Grinch who stole Christmas, right? It, it came anyway, even mm -hmm. without all the trappings and traditions. That's right. Although I look forward to it next year. So wonderful time to be reflecting on, um, well, not only our own uh, need for uh, repentance and not only to be, we should always be penitent, but not only to sort of focus on just the amazing things that God has done for us through Christ, our text today really takes on, I don't want to say a somber tone, but it takes on a serious tone when it comes to the sins of this world, including our own, also for pastors 
to be able to stand up to those things that are contrary to God's word, which Paul says will increase. And of course, he says, in fact, he says the time is coming. And I think a lot of us would agree the time is here. That's the kind of stuff we'll be talking about today. So it might be a good idea for us to begin with some prayer before we you know, before we dive into the text. Let us talk to our Lord together. Almighty and gracious God, you are indeed our Father. And we thank you that you have given to us not simply the gift of your Son, our Savior, but also the record of his work and his words and the message passed on and entrusted to his apostles first and then through them to the rest of the church. Recorded for us in Scripture where we find your strong word available to touch our lives. Lord, you let us know that what you have to say lasts forever. We find your word a constant source of strength, encouragement, instruction. At times, we are reluctant to listen or we're too distracted to think and focus. Help us today by your Holy Spirit to hear, to listen, to reflect and then by the grace you have given us through Jesus Christ to enact your word in our lives and in the lives of those around us, that Christ Jesus might touch them with life in a world that's covered with death and darkness. Help us to speak the word of truth so that whoever's ears might be itching can be scratched by the only thing that will solve that itch. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I mentioned earlier, this is the very last chapter in this letter. In fact, um, if if we take the timing that scholars believe as as uh, as true, which you know I tend to, that uh, this is the last um, well chapter that Paul would have written altogether. Uh, so we have here the very last thing that Paul wants to leave, and this time with Timothy, but certainly by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Before we I guess, read what comes next. Do you want to catch the folks up just a little bit on what he's been talking about? Yes, as we've gone through this section in, in this last letter, Paul is writing encouragement to Timothy as he puts it in print, and he wants it now, probably wants some of it to be read before Paul or before Timothy leaves Ephesus, and then he's going to be, according to God's will and, and Paul's desire, joining Paul in Rome where he's in prison. So what he's been doing is he's, he's reminding him to stay focused on the task at hand and to hold fast what's been given. And, and knowing that, as Paul himself nears the end of his life, he won't be there to, to be a resource. And every once in a while, somebody makes the comment, oh, I wish I'd asked my dad or my mom this while they were still alive. And, and here Paul is saying, I won't be here with you forever, but here's the stuff you need to hang on to. And then he gives encouragement and reminder that, that God himself is the one who gives us the words we need. So that even if our, our loved ones or the spiritual leaders you and I may have, have worked with over the years are no longer physically here, we still have this sure and certain word from God. It's that, that uh, statement from this past Sunday's reading from Second Peter, uh, this, this thing made more sure, the prophetic word of God. Now Paul passes that on to Timothy. And the final thing, I think, is, as we look at this, is recognition that Paul is vitally aware of his mortality. And I use those words intentionally, vitally aware of his mortality. And you and I need to be that way, too living with the awareness that we are dying 
but not defeated by the fact that death is coming. And, and so in these letters, this final letter in the final chapter of Paul's letter to Timothy, he is focused on both those things, death and life, one side frightening or intimidating, perhaps the other one reassuring and, and invigorating because we're facing death, but we're not dying forever. We're moving past that. So those thoughts are there as I think Paul deals with his own mortality in his own human existence and, and, and doing so never lets go of God's constant promise in Christ. Yeah, and so that is definitely a good introduction to what's going on in chapter 4, because he begins, and we're going to read, I'm going to read the first five verses, but he begins here, and I'm going to read I charge, because that's how the ESV reads it, but really it's I solemnly charge you. He's getting kind of serious here at the end. He's been serious the whole time, of course, but now mm-hmm. you know he realizes this is the, the last things he's going to be writing down. So here we go. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. All right, brother. So he solemnly charges in the presence of Jesus, right, calling upon God, and he tells him to basically do your job, right? Right. You know, he's given him all this encouragement, but but do your job. It's important. Yeah, I think think, uh, I would even— be a little bit more emphatic with the, the phrase. I would have gone with this Greek term and rendered it with an English word that probably others wouldn't go to, and that is, I obligate you. Sure, yeah. In the presence of God. you Who appointed you? Who appointed you to be what you are? God himself and the Lord Jesus Christ. They're the ones who called Timothy into the position he's in, and now Paul says, You're still in their presence. Even if I'm gone, God the Father, God the Son, still here. And this realization that Christ is the one who will come at the end and will judge by his appearing and his kingdom. So he's he's encouraging him, but also obligating him because Christ is the coming judge and Christ is the ruler. All authority in heaven and on earth given to me. Lo, I am with you always. These phrases from Matthew's gospel, keeping in mind that Paul himself spoke with Jesus, conversed with the Lord who taught him these things that he then passes on to others. Paul is emphatically reminding his son in the faith and and fellow worker, Timothy, that Jesus is constant. He is present, but he is also returning. And so this is it. Be ready. Preach the word in the right moment or the not right moment. Um, you know, the, the, the Greek phrase that's used there is, is in season, out season is how it comes in English. But the, the Greek actually uses the, the word the right time, the good occasion, and the alpha, privative, the bad occasion. In season, out of season, at just the right moment or when it doesn't seem to be the right moment. And, and the, 
the off the oft forgotten fact is the Holy Spirit does his work through the word, not through us. He uses us to bring the word. So as long as we bring the word, preach it, proclaim it. Right moment, we think, not right moment, still preach the word, the Holy Spirit will do the work. And I think for, for me in particular, as as a pastor over the years in retirement as well, the the greatest gift I still have is the opportunity to get up in front of people and and share the Word of God. So when I get to do that, I have to be careful that I handle myself in the right way, but the Word will always be appropriate. How I present it's really the issue, but the Word will always be appropriate. And I see that here in what Paul's telling him. And then he uses these words, reprove, rebuke, exhort, as we have in the ESV. Um, The reprove is not... I wouldn't say quite the, the right word, uh, but it, it's the idea that says, hey, folks, you, you did it a little bit wrong. Maybe guide is, is a word that can be used here. Then the rebuke is, is a turn back. You went the wrong way. Right. And, and finally, then exhort. That's to lift people up. That's to call them alongside you. That's to speak beside them so, so that you're not speaking at them. You're right there with them. And, and this is part of that, the preach the word phrase. Uh, that proclaim the word. And what are you proclaiming? God's message, certainly, but not simply the same thing as the written word that he had before. This is now the Logos. Proclaim Jesus the Christ. Proclaim the word in the sense of verbal sound, but also Jesus the Christ of God. So proclaim Jesus is part of what's going on here in this this exhortation. That time is coming mm-hmm. when many will not endure healthy, positive, sound teaching. I think that it's important for, for us to, to realize the Greek word that's used there is the same word we use for proper hygiene. Right. You know, it's, it's the right, healing, healthy, good word, as opposed to words that will fill your ears up but won't be good for you. So we have this need to share the good word. So, so I want to I want to I want to get your comments on a couple of things. So when we see preach the word, be yeah. ready in season and out of season, and then we get to that reprove, rebuke, and mm-hmm. exhort. Now it has the clause as it should with complete patience and teaching, right? We have elsewhere yep. gentleness. We have that Paul certainly mm-hmm. wants pastors and this pastor in particular to um, proclaim and exercise their office in a way that is for the benefit of other people. Yeah. However. Having received a couple of call documents in my life, uh, very rarely have I seen in the so-called job description that I need to be reproving, rebuking, and exhorting people. In fact, that seems to be the very thing that people don't care for in a pastor. Yeah. And um, when they take up that resp- – and hey, trust me, folks listening at home, pastors actually don't like that part either. But we, we have 1 Timothy 5, right, back in the last letter, mm-hmm. and he says – verse 20, he says pretty clearly – as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So yeah. if you have this idea that, you know, well, everything has to be super private, Eighth Commandment, put the best construction on it to the point where everything's so under the table that, you know, you don't want to disperse someone's reputation. Well, there are circumstances, which I think is what he's getting at with this itching ears thing that's coming up, where— it has to be brought out into the light. 
We see in Titus, which we'll hear about on Monday, but he says, therefore, rebuke them sharply, a certain group, yeah. that they may be sound in the faith. Yeah. So so we, we, we look at this. What what do you think? I mean, I know it's our sinfulness that doesn't like these things, but but where well, this, has sort of the, the role of the pastor gone from being a leader to now sort of a, a free therapist? What's happened? I think a part of part of what's involved here is to remember that some of the time when Jesus is speaking, and you were referring to Matthew eighteen there, uh, you know, rebuke or speak privately, that's that's not public ministry, that's personal relationship. That's individuals. That's where you're you're really speaking for yourself. When a pastor is called to preach the word, to rebuke, to exhort, to correct, um, you know, to reprove, that's the public ministry, and and that's done as you mentioned for the benefit of the whole. And the key here is if you're doing it properly as you use the phrase, with all or complete patience and teaching, if you're done with complete patience, people are used to you handling things in the right way. We as sinful human beings, our pride can get in the way, but keeping in mind that, that I'm caring for the flock, I'm nurturing the sheep. This is never about me being right. It's about them being cared for. And so here's the, the call then. It's like a doctor who's diagnosing a a medical condition, and the patient really doesn't want to hear that they've got a tumor that needs surgery, so the doctor just doesn't say anything. Um, Because, you know, you don't want to offend your patient, they'll stop coming. If you die, you'll stop coming too. So the, the need is to do what's best for those who are under your charge, not what they want you to do, but what they need. And, of course, Paul has done this himself. We get into this a little bit further in the in this particular chapter. But upon various occasions, Paul did speak directly to someone in front of others. And he says he rebuked Peter in the presence of others when Peter was uh, applying the wrong rule about dietary standards. And, and so the, the public activity of rebuking, exhorting, you know, it's it's—two things are involved. One is the hearer has to remember we're all sinners. None of us are better than another— and the Father who sees in secret also gives us rewards of the gift of faith. Paul gets to that a little bit further in this letter. Um, but, but the purpose is never to be right or to win an argument. It's always to care for those in need. And that's the, you know, the in-season and out-season uh, at the right moment, but not necessarily the right moment in everybody else's eyes. It has to be for the good of saving the soul. If the person walks away and drops dead of a heart attack 10 minutes after you rebuked them, that's far better than they walked away, dropped dead, and you never said anything. And you know, most of us never think in those terms because life tends not to go that way. But the eternal responsibility is more important than the physical, and our society has pretty much ignored that. And I would, uh, I would add to that that if you are a pastor who is operating according to this idea of complete patience in teaching, that, you know, obviously the sinful flesh is going to be defensive and resist any sort of correction, reproving, rebuking, or exhortation. But if you are known in your ministry for putting yourself under the authority of the Scriptures, basing your diagnoses, so to speak, on God's clear word, then... Yeah, they might be mad at you in the presence, but it's going to be pretty hard for you know you to be besmirched as someone who is argumentative and and divisive if 
if when you do these things, they're obviously according to what God's word says. Yeah. And, and this is, this it, is again, the word. That's what he's talking about, using right. the word. Yep. Now, in chapter three, uh, in yesterday's show, we said, uh, he said in verse one, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And now in chapter four, verse three, we just read, for the time is coming when people will not endure healthy or sound teaching. Um, you know, how long did you think that it took for that to be fulfilled? I mean, is it really worse today than it was back then? <laughs> no, it, it's not. And and the thing is, you and I might be more aware of more uh, frequent events because of the technology we have to make us aware of it. But it has always been this simple truth. Human nature resists the Word of God. The Holy Spirit has to bring us around to see what God says. And so the time is coming, and it comes every day, and it comes in every parish, and it comes for every pastor and every congregation. There'll be a time in a particular parish's life situation where people won't want to hear what the pastor has to say. It's not like it's it's a cultural thing that suddenly turned the calendar to 2023, now's the time. It's a recurring event. It's a cyclical process. And that's why we have to be always ready to proclaim the word in season, out of season, at the good moment and the, the, the not so good moment, and doing this knowing that human nature will always gravitate, sinfully broken human nature will gravitate to the thing that makes us look better. And so the, the itching ears comment there, which, which teaching makes me look better in my own eyes? The Word of God says I'm a, a broken sinner and cannot come to God on my own, cannot earn what he gives. Other teachings say you're broken, but if you try really hard, you step up and you get to a higher level and, and you make improvements. And, oh, by the way, if you want to live a certain way and your desire is to follow that will, it's okay to do that. The Word of God doesn't matter what it tells you don't act that way. And it's, human nature always wants to go with something other than God's Word. And Paul's just reminding Timothy that it's going to happen in Timothy's life very shortly. That's for us still true today. I, I know you, I'm sure, from your ministry have your own examples, but I can tell you that in my short ministry, I've already had uh, several occasions where this has really played out in a concrete way, and, and I'll give those examples um, because they often deal with the same issue. I've had people come to me on more than one occasion, different people, and say, you know, I grew up LCMS Lutheran, or I grew up, you know, believing these things about the Bible, but now my brother or my son or my cousin has come out as homosexual. Mm -hmm. And so now I just can't believe in a God that wouldn't love them as much as I love them because they mistake this idea that, you know, being against something is hatred. Yeah. And so they say, well, you know, we're, I'm going to go to another church where they affirm these things despite what the Bible says. I just can't believe in a God who would be against this behavior because, well, I love these people and they're and they're wonderful people and, and they're my relatives. Um, or even less so, I've experienced where people have come and said, well, you know, I've always understood the uh, LCMS's position on, say, female pastors, but now my daughter wants to become an ELCA pastor, mm -hmm. so— I'm just going to abandon all that and go to their church because, well, I don't, I don't want to have to have those awkward conversations. So they literally don't want to endure the sound or healthy teaching, 
but yeah. they want to go and find a teacher that's just going to suit what they feel. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, do you have examples that you might want to share? I mean, what, what kind of, how are, are people, like, how can this be seen today so that people can be wary of? Well, I think a, a, one that I've experienced is someone who was talking about their marriage being so frustrating and that they didn't believe they could be happy if they remained married to their spouse. And and their statement was, and I know God wants me to be happy. Therefore, I'll Mm -hmm. do what I want because God wants me to be happy. And it's the understanding that I'll determine what God thinks and then I'll apply it. And that's really what you're talking about. There are those who come to me and say, I want to do this. Therefore, if God says no, God must be wrong so I can have my way. And, um, you know, I deal with this very simple issue that just because you want to do it doesn't make it right. And if, if say, for instance, somebody wants to, and I've not had this happen, but say somebody wants to, to rob banks because they just can't help themselves, they need more money, and, and robbing banks has worked well for them. Well, who am I to tell them they're wrong if it works well for them? Right? <laughs> right. I mean that's the same logic. I I, exactly. I try to help people. Them. Yeah. Well, I help. I try to help people deal with the issue of what logic or reasoning they're using to make this presentation. I know that I've been taught, and I know you took it from the Bible, but somebody else wants to do something differently. So, my logic says I love them, therefore I don't have to love what God says. Now, people never and, say it and- that way, but that's what they're actually saying. Well, that is what they're saying. And what we what doesn't make it any easier is that you can find all these teachers out there that will itch whatever oh, yeah. itch you got. Sure. And so if you so they'll come and they won't explicitly say, Well, I think God's wrong on this issue. They'll say something to the effect of, Well, clearly other people interpret it differently. Yeah. And, and it sort of gives them permission. Mm-hmm. And the truth is you could find pretty much any interpretation you want out there. The Bible's a big book, and if you take it out of context, yes. you can mm-hmm. make up whatever you want. Yeah, and, and I think there that we continue to deal with uh, the failure of most people, and as pastors we can fall into this trap too, of being consistent in how we deal with what we find in the Word of God. Um and especially if you take it out of context, you're you're going to mess that up. I know a number of families that deal with and struggle with the issue of a, a family member who is um, homosexual in their inclination. And I think the the key phrase there is is that you don't have to stop loving them because they have a sinful desire, but you don't have to endorse the desire either. And that part most people can't cope with because they're not sure. It's hard for us to love someone who's going to act in a way we disapprove of and tell them we disapprove of it and keep on loving them because we interpret that to mean they don't love us because they don't listen to us. Well, if God is the one we're not listening to, what are we saying to God? And this is a, a big challenge when we have to apply it personally. It's, it's easy to do hypothetically or in an abstract setting. But when I have to do it myself, I like to remind people that life is not full of a bunch of different hard questions. It's, it's as somebody once put it, it's just the same difficult question over and over again. Will I do it my way or will I do it the way God says? That's really life's challenge. And we have to answer that question for our own personal lives again and again, each day over and over. 
And it's not a complicated question, but boy, it's tough to deal with because our sinful human nature wants to go the wrong way. And, and Paul gets to that here as he talks about the wandering off into myths. Mm-hmm. You know, what are the myths? Well, what do we teach? We have scripturally stated, and then eyewitness accounts that Christ died and rose again. And as somebody once asked the question, and I think you've heard this phrase before, um, what other religion is based on a person whose founder, what other religion has a founder who died and then came back to life and appeared to people afterward? Which other religion besides Christianity has that? You right. Know, well, most of them are all based on what you do, not what God has done for you. Yeah, yeah. And, and this, yeah. Is the, this is the key concept that I can't accomplish anything without God's blessing and grace. Um, you know, I, I like to remind people that in the morning when I get up, I have to remind myself I didn't set all the plants to generate oxygen overnight while I was sleeping so I could breathe in the morning. God took care of that for me. And, and I never stop in the morning first thing and say, okay, did I reset the regulator for oxygen? Never have to. <laughs> You know, but but uh, after you after it happens long enough, we assume and and forget. So, well, I want to hear more about what you have to say about verse five about being sober minded, enduring suffering, and uh, doing the work of an evangelist. But we're going to have to wait till after our break. So, folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor Tyson and I will continue with Second Timothy chapter four. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Stephen Tice, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Dear listeners, I pray that God is blessing you through our study of His Word. If you have any thoughts or questions or feedback, I'd love to hear it. Just shoot me an email at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. And uh, you know what? While you're here, let's talk about how you can catch more episodes if you've missed any. I mean, you know that you can tune in over the radio if you're in the St. Louis area. You can listen on demand at KFUO.org. But you know what? We know you're busy. So KFUO has made it even easier to make sure you never miss the program. Download the KFUO app or subscribe to Thy Strong Word on your favorite podcasting platform. I'm so grateful you're part of the Thy Strong Word family. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing, share the love with your friends and family. Now, Pastor Tice, before the break, I said, you know, I want to get into this verse 5 because, well, you know, it obviously speaks to my heart as a pastor, and I'm sure it does yours too. As for you, which is in contrast to the itching ears people, always be sober-minded, 
and then endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. I guess what stands out there to me is endure suffering. Uh, yeah. What's your take on this? Sure. Well, the first the first term there, sober-minded, it, it's really, uh, I would call it, have the presence of mind not to be misguided. Um you know, have your one have your wits about you is how it's sometimes said in English, but but at the same time, it it means be under the influence of the right thing, and for biblical references, this is the Holy Spirit, of course. But the endure suffering that that's simply the recognition that you and I will go through, be involved with times that are not good, and and uh, bluntly, it it means when when you have a bad experience. You keep right on moving. Um, I think Paul himself would have pointed out the times he, you know, shipwrecked, beaten, left for dead, suffering. He went through much suffering. He endured it. And and to endure means literally to pass on through it, not, not to get sabotaged, sunk by it. To endure suffering means you keep on going. Um, I've never personally run a marathon, and I never hope to do so. Uh, mm-hmm. But I know a number of people who have, and they talk about reaching a point where you hit a physical wall and you have to run through it. Um, and granted, it's you know it's a tough thing to do and usually requires training. And the spiritual training then to be enduring suffering is to focus on what God has done for us, still does for us, and in this enduring suffering, He's telling. Timothy, he's going to suffer. He's going to be attacked. He's going to be falsely accused of things. He's going to be um, abandoned or emotionally attacked and spiritually attacked by Satan so that he needs to endure that to remember that those things are all short-term. The the psalmist, Psalm 23, David's phrase, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And the key is you're going to walk through it. You come out on the other side, but when you're in the shadow, you got to keep walking or you don't come out. And so the endure the suffering is a reminder that in this world, we will all suffer. Jesus said, you're going to have suffering, but do not lose heart. I've overcome it. So endure is is a, a way of saying, keep on moving, focus on the right thing. And then the very next phrase is, do the work of an evangelist. Well, Okay, what were you called to do? Enumerate your sufferings or to remember that Christ suffered for you and then to share the good news, to be a witness, to be light and salt. And so as, as you look at the, that very next phrase, do the work of an evangelist, it reminds me that somebody once said, Paul does not tell Timothy he's gifted as an evangelist. He's just got the work to do. And, and sometimes that's a reminder to you and to me as well as pastors. Yeah. That we have work to do that we weren't necessarily gifted by God to do it, but we still have the work to do, so we keep doing it. So if we're tempted to say, you know, oh, Lord, I just don't think I'm cut out for this, the Lord's saying, well, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but you still got to go do it, right? Yes. Yep. Yep. Well, I've been there. I've hit the wall in ministry. I'll be honest. You know, I've, I've experienced times in my ministry um, some early on and then about halfway through so far. And, you know, we're times mm-hmm. you just go, you know what, I'm just going to go get a job at a retail store and then I can just do my eight, hit the gate and everything will just be done. And I don't have to have all these worries and burdens, you know, after hours, et cetera, et cetera. Uh Um, but 
you know, that this is why it's a vocation, because then you do, you get that sort of message from God through his word, of course, that mm-hmm. says, no, keep going, going. Yeah. <laughs> you just work yeah. through this. Well, and, and I think that we we live in a time where people have become accustomed to several things. One of them is uh, a concept that came out of the the idea of the late 1800s, but the idea of retiring at a particular age, um, it was because people were no longer capable of safely doing certain work. You didn't want them to endanger others by doing it, so you found a way to encourage them to stop. Um, this is called retirement. Um, right. and, and I have discovered that there are certain things physically I can't do anymore as I've aged, and so I have to remind myself, don't try to do that. You won't get it done. But there's a bunch of other stuff I can still do, and I need to keep doing that. And convenience. The other thing is avoiding suffering. I shared with people over the decades that many people in our primary in our culture have the primary objective in life of avoiding inconvenience. And you think about it. What what gets frustrating mm. to people when they're in a grocery store? They're waiting the in line. line. Yeah. Because it's so inconvenient. It's not suffering. <laughs> it's <laughs> really <right>. inconvenience. <laughs> okay. So endure suffering means realize that there really is suffering that comes to you. And I think about missionaries over the, the centuries who have gone to different places or new cultures or even in their own culture and have shared the word of God and been ridiculed or rejected, sometimes attacked physically. And they continue to go right ahead and, and do what they're doing. And maybe they've not had a comfortable living, no, uh, no health care, uh, the housing has been substandard. You know, what, what does this mean? It means you keep doing the work you're given to do, fulfill your ministry, because it was given you to do, and you used the word vocation before. Uh, all Christians have a vocation, mm-hmm. and, and we all are called as people of God to follow him, we all have different roles we fill in the life of the, the family or the church, but we're all called to keep on doing that work. And I think the as Paul's writing to Timothy again, keeping in mind this is the end of the end of his writing, as we point out. He is telling Timothy, I'm writing as one, very next section we look at, as somebody yeah. who's had to do it. So why don't we add those verses then? I'm just gonna read uh, two more verses, actually three, six, seven, and eight. Here we go. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Very beautiful words for him to end this letter on. Of course, he has a lot more in terms of some postscript here, but sure. this is sort of mm-hmm. the end of the teaching. Um, beautiful words, but somber. Yeah. Well, I I think, again, it's, it's as I mentioned earlier, it's um, keeping focus, uh, v- the vitality uh, of God's blessing, and he's vitally focused on his own mortality. He uses a couple of phrases there that are, I've, I find one more significant than others, but that's just because of me. Um uh, Poured out as a drink offering. This is a, a reference, of course, to Old Testament um, worship practices, and shedding of blood would be connected to the pouring out uh, as a drink offering. That was literally what it was, blood poured out on the altar. But the time of my departure has come. That phrase is actually a positive. 
And the way this jumps out at me is is that Jesus is reported in one of the Gospels as having been talking with Moses and Elijah on the mountain of transfiguration about his departure, which he was about to accomplish. Right. If you if you depart, it's because the work is done. And so what Paul is saying here is, I'm about to leave the scene because God's work is done through me. I've carried out the task. And now he says, I've fought the good fight, finished the race, kept the faith. All of that is tied to the idea that you'd only depart when you're done. You don't leave before you're finished. Jesus was about to accomplish his departure. Well, Paul is about to accomplish his departure. And he uses the the image he's used in other epistles about uh, the athletics finished the race, kept his eye focused on the finish line, you know, looking down the the road ahead of him. Um, And he has fought the good fight. Uh, Again, Paul uses this image elsewhere of an athlete in training and the way that they focus and, and keep themselves in line with their purpose by task orientation as opposed to distractions. I have kept the faith. And he hasn't abandoned what God gifted him with. Um, this personality uh, of Paul is such that, you know, he he struggled, he fought. He started off thinking he had the right faith, and then God opened his eyes to show him he didn't. And now he's kept the right thing, which was handed to him as a child in the promises of circumcision and the word of God in which he was instructed. But it wasn't until Jesus blinded him first and then opened his eyes through baptism, that he actually saw what the faith is. And once he saw it, he kept it. And that's what he's telling Timothy. As he told him in the previous chapter from childhood, you've had this. Well, I've kept it, and and now I'm about to go. And when I leave, I'll get that crown of righteousness promised by Jesus, but also the the, uh, victor's laurel wreath, crown of, of the victor, if you will, but this one's even better than that. This one, this race that he's running is the race to eternal life, and it's, it's got a crown that never fades. And the Lord will give it to him, not when Paul says, but on the day that Jesus comes back. But not just me. And this is, again, Paul keeping a focus on the whole group. All those who have loved Christ's appearing. And remember, when Paul saw Jesus appear literally to him, it blinded him. And he loved his appearing. We sometimes miss that phrase appearing in Paul's life. Jesus literally appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And now he's going to appear again and all eyes will see him. And, and we look forward to that day knowing that we'll have this same crown of righteousness. Not a reward, but the gift God promised. The metaphors here can be a little confusing if you don't know how Paul talks. Because he'll say things like, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, race, I have kept the faith. And so you think, okay, well, then reaching salvation, being saved, having the, the ability to be with the Lord forever is all about the things that we do, fighting the good fights and finishing the race, keeping the faith. But then he switches, and even though he's using this imagery of this laurel crown, as you talked about, right? So in the Greek games, the Mm -hmm. people, the athletes who succeeded would receive this crown, but then it turns very passive because then it's laid up for me is the crown of righteousness. And as you pointed out, that the Lord's going to give him. 
James has similar thoughts in James 1, verse 12. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Mm-hmm. So we can kind of feel a little empathy and sympathy for those Christians who feel like that their salvation is based on the things they do because, well, frankly, sometimes the Bible sounds like that. But you have to look clearly and understand that there's a difference between the way we experience life and the faith and the reality of the source of our salvation. So it sure feels like we're choosing to read the Bible and strive after God and receive the sacraments and go to church and keep the faith. But even though it feels like that, the reality is that all that we do, we do because of God's gift to us. And of course, we're saved by his grace alone. Yeah. And I think I think you just used the key word there. The the word is gift. And ultimately, it is all gift. And, and this is, again, how we continue to endure suffering and how we keep moving forward, doing the, the work of an evangelist, fulfilling our ministry, is a realization that it doesn't depend on our performing. It's already given to us. Now we are carrying forward what's been given. And, and when I remember specifically that it's given to me to share with others, then it's so much easier to pass it on. If, if I think it's me and I've got to come up with the, white, you know, the right words or the, the, the proper way to say it, well, I have, to, I have to do that in one sense, but no, I don't. I just have to make sure I say what God said, and he'll do that. And so here, again, Paul passing on to Timothy, it's laid up for me. My performance won't earn it, but I keep doing the work I'm given. And, and as you pointed out, we remember that God is the one who gives— Therefore, we keep following where he leads because he's going to lead us to the right spot. Well, anything else before we read sort of his postscript here with his personal instructions and final greetings? Well, I, th- I think basically, as, as we mentioned earlier, he is, he is putting Timothy under obligation to keep doing the work that he's been given. And for us as Christians today, we still are given this obligation. Whether the world accepts what we say or not isn't the issue. Whether they agree that we have authority to say it or not isn't the issue. It's been given to us, and we are now in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is with us always to the end of the age. We can keep doing these things. Doesn't mean it'll be easy. Doesn't even mean it'll be popular. But we can keep going through those because God is giving us the strength. Okay, well, let's uh, move on then. I'm going to read starting with verse 9, and uh, I'll head through 18. It's not quite the end, but that's most of it. Here we go. Paul writes, Do your best to come to me soon, for Damas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark. And bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through the message 
Through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So yeah, it's it's we are reminded that this is quite literally a letter. He's just sort of adding at the end, yeah. you know, by the way, here's some guys that you need to watch out mm-hmm. for. Oh, grab my cloak and some books and parchments. I need those. And oh yeah, this Alexander the coppersmith is a jerk. Don't go near him. I mean, it's just sort of it really gives us a personal character. Yeah. And I think what what we see here again is it's so easy for us as human beings to put the the biblical characters on the pedestal that belongs to God alone. Um, now, because they are our fathers in the faith and, and live the faith out, we walk with in the same route they walk, and, and we emulate their faith as Paul and, and the other apostles remind us to do. But, but the key thought here is that Paul worked with a group of other Christians. He never worked alone. This was a joint project, even though he himself has, he says, now been deserted by everybody— and and uh, he's he's going to stand up and talk, and and the word will be known through him. At my defense, no one came to stand by me. May it not be charged against them. Well, that's quoting the same thing Jesus said on the cross. Uh, I think I think we see here the two factors most of all. One is Paul is very much a sinful human being like the rest of us, whom God used to accomplish His purpose. And number two, Paul fully understood he couldn't do this alone. He was always in consultation with and working with other Christian people. And he lists some of them here. And I find it very interesting. He says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. When earlier in the book of Acts, he wouldn't go on a missionary journey with Mark because he checked out early. So we we see both a restoration here and an awareness that Paul sees others as sinful human beings who, like him, have failed and God has lifted up. And, and I think it's so important for you and me to see that. M- note those who are opposition to us and, uh, and avoid them and, and be careful. And at the same time, recognize that there are other people working with us who can and should help. So let's let them. Yeah, I like 14 when it comes to the coppersmith especially because he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. So what you expect is, from a human sinful nature point of view, that you expect him to say, so you know what, i tell you what, why don't you get him back for me? Why don't you go, or why don't you tell everybody that you know to not support his business or whatever? No, he says, well, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. But beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed my message. Yeah. So there's both a recognition, there's a uh, recognition of his sin, but there's a recognition that the Lord's going to take care of it, but then also a caution to this pastor just to beware of him. Um, so I just think that that sort of that sort of addition there is is very instructive to us too. Yeah. Because on the one hand, you mentioned Mark, right? And we see this reconciliation, and then we see this. Well, this is there's no opportunity for reconciliation here. So Paul is following his own teachings, which is beware of him. Yeah, and and the 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 key phrases as you pointed out is um, the Lord will repay him. And the other one is, he strongly opposed our message, right. the, the logos, our word. Um, and it was common to Timothy and Paul. It wasn't just Paul who got opposed. 
And and recognizing that there are those who stand against the church, sometimes think they stand against a person, but they don't. They stand against the Word of God. And and the Word of God is not something any mere human can ever overcome, oppose completely. And now we're back in John's gospel, but and in this sense, you know, it's this understanding that the Lord is with us. And, and so I don't have to get even with anybody. The Lord will take care of it. And as pastors, that's important for us to remember when human beings in the life of a Christian church, whether you're pastor or layperson, somebody opposes you, doesn't agree with you, you don't have to get them back. You don't have to get even with them. Um, you know, if, if you go and rebuke, re, you know, exhort, correct, uh, you know, whatever whatever other sound has to be included with with them, you do that. But at the same time, you don't have to get even with them. And boy, the line between rebuke and reprove and get even, you got to be careful with that one. Absolutely. And and then he follows it up with this reality that, well, you know, actually, now that I think about it, at my first defense, so there he is, getting ready to be imprisoned. No one stood up for him. They all deserted me, he says. But then he echoes maybe Stephen's words, right? Falling mm-hmm. to his knees, Stephen said, Lord, don't hold this sin against them when he was being martyred. Jesus himself, of course, said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And so he says, well, may it not be charged against them. But there's another reason why it shouldn't be charged against them. Paul's imprisonment um, actually aided him in his proclamation of the gospel, whether whether it was a pleasant thing or not. Talk about endure suffering. Yeah. Well, he, he regularly was there present with other other prisoners, with the, the Roman guards, with, with those who came and went. And he he had that opportunity as he's traveling by ship before he was put in prison. He's he's encouraging and talking to other people, witnessing to them, and then he, uh, you know, when the shipwreck occurs in Malta, uh, the whole understanding that he's able to to share the gospel and witness to people in that sense. Uh, the the phrase here, the Lord strengthened me, that the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. He got to Rome because he was in prison. His appeal to Caesar. And if you read the book of Acts, you discover if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, he wouldn't have been let go while he was on Cyprus. So, you know, the, this whole understanding that we are looking at a man who's on the way to Rome where he's going to testify in front of government officials and many people who have never otherwise hear what he says. He was rescued from the lion's mouth. And in the that lion's mouth concept, we recognize right. that Jesus is the one who saves you and me, just like Daniel he wouldn't give up. The Lord saved him. You and I are saved from the, the one who seeks to devour us. With just a couple minutes left, let's get those final greetings in. He writes in verses 19 through 22, Chrysa and Aquila, the household of Onesiphorus, Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. You have one minute, brother. Anything else you want to say before we end today? Yeah, Paul is appointing and, and aligning people to keep going with the work even after he's gone. And when Timothy goes to meet him in, in Rome, work will continue in Ephesus. It keeps going after you and I are gone as pastors. The Lord supplies his church with what it needs in, in all times. Wonderful. As always, I love having you on. I'd like thank to you, thank sir. my guest this morning, the Reverend Stephen Tice, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri.
folks, our study of the pastoral epistles continues on Monday with St. Paul's letter to Titus. The apostle begins that letter in much the same way he did with Timothy, with an urge for those who lead the church to be above reproach and to be on guard against false teachers. So make sure you join us for this new book. But until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word. Mm -hmm.